Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Mike McDermott. He is one of the founders and also the executive chairperson of FreshBooks. Mike, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? First of all, thanks for having me, Eric. Okay, my background, yes, I'm a, a founder. I was running a small design firm. I saved over an invoice one day, billing my clients. I used to use Word and Excel, and I quickly realized the shortcomings, having lost uh, an important document. And so I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I, I built a very rudimentary online invoicing thing. Uh, this is like in 2003. So, I mean, that's that's the, since then, we moved into my parents' basement for like three years. And and today, uh, that initial side project I built for my agency has turned into FreshBooks. And so, uh, we're number two in America for small business accounting software. We uh, have over 500 employees now and paying customers in over 100 countries around the world and with over 30 million people having used the software. So, that's you know, as it pertains to this interview, that's probably most of the the pertinent uh, background. Awesome. So talk to me about how you got into the tech space, how you pivoted away from your design firm. What was that whole experience like? You know, I I understand that kind of you had that aha moment. I had a similar one. I used to do invoices for some of the consulting I did in, you know, Word. And I remember sending one client an invoice or sending two invoices and the number was the same. And I was like, whoops, that's just because I didn't increment it the next time. You know, so you can see a need, right? I, I definitely saw, felt the pain uh, that you felt. So talk to me about that transition, what it was like, that jump. Yeah, so there, there was the pain that inspired the frustration. I had a series of problems, like wondering who owed me money and how much they, they owed me. So that was rattling around the back of my mind, and I had the agency. And so I had that moment where I just snapped, and I started working in my, you know, air quotes, spare time. So kind of evenings, and I took some time out of my day because it was my own shop and I could do that. But I, I built that that simple prototype, and I had a gentleman who was working with me doing contract work for my agency, and he was a doctor in computer science, and he he was like, oh, this is interesting. And we just both saw it as a little side project, and he was literally like, can I play with this? And so I said, sure. And so he started working the back end, and I started with the front end. Anyways, fast forward 12 months, we, we've created something we could take to market. And we we launched it, and and then we just we really iterated from there. And so I think you know rightly or wrongly, I think the heart of your question might be you know how did you do both things at once? And I, I did them parallel for a while. So I kept the agency, and that you know, provided me with some you know some income, and and actually enabled me to support some employees. And I just gradually started moving my time and then my team's time over to FreshBooks. And so it, it was kind of two or three years of, of transition from agency to startup, if you will, and. You know, that's that's kind of how we manage those early years. So it was a gradual process. It was not like one day you're like, I'm making enough money that I should just shut down the design firm. But it was a process that took place over, you know, two, three years. Yeah, that's right. Through a combination of things. One of which was we just weren't earning that much revenue. <laughs> you know, after two years after saving that invoice, we were making a hundred bucks a month. You know, it was recurring revenue, which was great, but it was a hundred dollars a month. And there were kind of three of us who were involved in the project. So that, that wasn't enough to support anybody. And so we needed the income from the agency and, and we just toughed it out until we had enough uh, enough income to support, you know, pretty much six people. 
Now, was there any hesitation in finally making that jump or you're like, this is what I always wanted to do? For me, I've always liked those jumping moments. And then you go and just create, and you, like, I, I think of it as like jumping off the cliff and figuring out how you land before you get down there. Some people are terrified of that. That for me is the most, you know, special part of sort of entrepreneurship and the process is, is figuring all that stuff out. So, so for me, there was uh, it was gradual in a way, but, you know, under the hood, really quickly, I was spending 80% of my time on this side project. And it was just a matter of trying to get all the employees there too, and then get everybody to 100% time. So it was kind of a job of like, can we optimizing for, can we make enough revenue to keep you all, you know, everybody solvent <laughs> while we transition? But my, my head and my heart switched pretty quickly because the challenges of building a product company, I, you know, I liked a lot of the things with client service and there was a great need to continue to improve your craft and expertise. But I find, you know, product companies are sort of, I think I sometimes refer to it as like three layer chess. There's these three layer chess boards. We've never actually played, but playing one chess board's hard. Playing three at once, like three-dimensional chess, is uh, that is next level. And I, I, relative to a, uh, a service company, I find product companies to be that way. Interesting. So you're bootstrapping the early days of FreshBooks. I mean, no easy feat, but nice that you have a design firm where you can, you know, keep that going and generating the revenue to keep everyone covered. Did you think about outside investors? For us, so not often recognized or acknowledged in the story. We put some of our own money in and we raised some angel money to the tune of like $40,000, $50,000, you know, here and there. Checks like that to kind of keep us going in the, the basement days. So raised a little money there, but that was really friends and family and people who kind of cared more about us than ever expecting to get their money back. Love money, if you will. And, uh, you know, over that time, as I learned about venture capital in that industry, and if you think about the time frame I'm talking about, which is like, you know, 2003 to 2006, it was a pretty different time for the, the VC industry. That industry was a cottage industry and, you know, had a pretty good reputation in a lot of cases of taking advantage of entrepreneurs just because the information arbitrage was so huge. And so I was pretty leery, to be honest. And what I was most concerned of, because I'm, I'm just sort of so customer focused, was frankly, losing the ability to do the right thing for the customer. And I thought that if we brought on venture capital in those early days, you know, knowing that I didn't know how to sort of manage <laughs> venture capitalists or that whole process, I would find myself in a place where I could no longer do the right thing for the customer. And so I was basically, I was highly paranoid and uh, fearful. And so we just put our heads down and kept building the business. But, you know, over the course of doing that, I, I learned more. I, I learned more about VC. I also really, the internet came along and made a lot of information available. I built some relationships with other entrepreneurs who, you know, helped me understand how this stuff worked and, and, you know, a whole bunch of VCs, frankly, which was great. And so kind of became a student of it and then got to understand how things worked and eventually ultimately raised a bunch of capital and then raised some more after that. So it was a process, about a decade of no institutional capital while we just, you know, sort of figured out how to get this business going. Now, you know, that was 2003-ish, right? Now, 2021, if you were doing FreshBooks today, you know, if you had started it, if the environment was like today, as far as the venture capital market, and especially, and I, I assume you were in the Toronto area back then too, would you have raised money earlier? I might have. I think the question is, you know, hey, if I had the access to information, if, you know, could have joined an accelerator, an incubator to kind of speed up the the learning curve, you know, for us in 2003, like, I'm really glad we didn't speed it up. Because, uh, you know, frankly, the market wasn't even ready. Like when we started out, people were like, oh, can you send us the source code on a CD so we can host it? Like it was, you know, people weren't committed to the cloud yet. And, and one of the worst things that can happen is you 
you're too early. You raise too much capital, which kind of predicates a whole bunch of expectations in a certain direction for your company. But but the market hasn't evolved enough yet that you know the way you're going to market and the way you're serving your customers is going to be the, the right one. And so long-winded way of saying, I think that the timing was good for us. And so it's really hard to retrade decisions like that. I know I'm a founder of a, you know, some other companies. And in one case, we're like, we're going to build, you know, I hope tens of millions of dollars of software before we may even have a dollar of revenue, but that's appropriate to that opportunity. And, and this one was one where we could get started with less capital because it was a web application and, you know, that that's just different. So I, I think it's sort of, opportunity dependent the rest of it. I hate to give a non-answer like that, but I don't no, have a I ton think of that's regrets. that's a good answer. I mean, you might have raised money, but at the same time, there's there's a need to learn about your market. There's a need to figure out that product market fit. And there's also a need not to scale something before the market's ready to consume it, right? You start a clock, so to speak, you know, when you raise money in most cases, or investors want to see that growth kicking in fast. Yeah, 100%. Just by way of anecdote, we almost raised $300,000 for 30% of the company back in the basement, and, and we wanted to do it. But I, I'm pretty confident if we had succeeded in that that fundraise, it was with some angels, but I, I think we'd be out of business today. I, I think it would have, you know, and not that they were terrible people, but the expectations and all those kinds of things would have been mismatched with the timeline it was going to take to incubate, you know, our approach to the market and a variety of other things. I mean, they're probably thinking, wow, I would own a lot of fresh books for a small amount of, I'd be millionaires. <laughs> that would be, you know, one of the things they might be thinking. Yeah. I try, I mean, listen, one of those, I, I'll go ahead and tell you just on the, you know, as you're building a company, you want the right people around you. The gentleman who is kind of our lead point of contact for that was a wonderful, wonderful man. And I, I tried to get, like, when we started raising capital and kind of before we did, I went back to him. I was like, listen, like, I think this thing's going Okay. I'm not sure that I need the money, but you know, I'd really love to give you the opportunity to invest now if you want to, just because he was so helpful to us. Like he was, he was a very positive, you know, it was a positive experience. Yes, we tried to raise money that probably would have really hurt us in the long run, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that individual. He was just wonderful. Yeah, I, I understand that, having been through that. So talk to me about the scaling process, you know, small startup to over, I, th- I think you said 25 million plus users. What advice do you have for people who, who want to scale, want to scale product, want to scale company? Well, I've got lots of sort of uh, pithy philosophical statements. So I'll give you a few and we can talk them through. That sounds great. <laughs> so so I, have a, I have a couple of beliefs uh, that I always go back to. And, and when I'm lost, try to remind myself of. Well, one of them is, you know, to be successful in business, but also in life. I, I think you need two things, which is shared values and alignment. And if you bring on and start working with people who, you know, you don't really have those shared values with when things get rocky, that's going to show up and, and probably be divisive and contentious and all this kind of stuff. So you want to think about, Hey, what makes this person tick? Do I want to sit next to this person for 60 weeks for 10 years, you know, 60 hours a week for 10 years. It's really important who you, who you found with. And then, and then also important when you start hiring, like do these people have this, this baseline of, of values? And I'm not talking about political beliefs or anything like that, like just some core you know, core values, are they like, can you, do they have integrity? Are they going to tell you something's wrong if it's wrong, right? That, that kind of stuff. So shared values and alignment. And then, yeah, I guess alignment's the other part, which is like, hey, are we all clear on where we're going? You know, and are we all bought into it? Because if you don't know where we're going, then we're probably not going to get there. And if you know where we're going, but you're not bought in, then we're probably not going to get there. So, so you're kind of, you're yeah, doing those yeah. things kind of all the time. You know, another thing that comes to mind because you you know kind of put some of the earlier questions in context is, you know, really for software companies, it's all people. 
right? Like the biggest assets people, you're just using capital to get more people so you can do more stuff with them, right? Whether it's build software, sell software, you know, market software, whatever, it's people. And so, uh, you know, and I don't know who this was, I think it like podcast or something, but like every problem's a people problem, every solution's a people solution. As you go along when you're scaling, you know, my pattern was solving for people of good intention who had capability, not solving for utmost technical expertise. I frankly wouldn't have been able to recognize it if I, I saw it. I didn't know it was kind of more on the business. I had, you know, done some design stuff, built some websites, but was not an engineer. So so I solved for like people of good intent who were kind of like loyal and into what we were doing. And then we progressively figured things out. And over time, your pattern recognition improves. And then it's just a job of like, you know, they're scaling you which is like, hey, don't hold up the growth of the business. Keep learning. Be open. Don't get high on your own supply is something, you know, like you got to you respect if people are disagreeing with you, you got to understand why and leave room for them to do that. But then, you know, the harder part almost, there's yourself. Actually, it's brutally hard to like grow yourself. And, you know, when you're trying to figure all this stuff out, especially if you don't have experience in another company where you've been mentored and developed or something like that. So as a first time founder. And then the other part of it is, is the people and just, you know, outgrowing different people at different times, right? And that is, uh, you know, you have to make changes and you want to keep some of those people, but you're going to layer them, put somebody on top and, and that's hard. And so like, it's all about people, yourself being one of those people that needs to grow and develop. And then the, the people you need to surround yourself with to really make it all happen. Yeah, that is, a, you know, it's, I'd like to dig into all those things a little bit, but uh, let's talk about the people one first. In particular, you know, the layering. What advice do you have? Like, in a lot of cases, entrepreneurs might have their, you know, first VP of sales that's great for bringing them that first million dollars of ARR, but maybe isn't the right guy and often isn't the right guy, you know, to scale them to the next 20 or 30. What advice do you have for them, especially when they have someone that's helped them a lot, that it's, done well for the company, but just isn't the right guy to get them to the next level? How do you help them through that process, both A, identifying it and maybe figuring out how to have those conversations? So the first thing to know is it's super delicate and super hard. And, you know, I think the first thing is just to come at the whole process from a place of respect. I think sometimes you can get, you know, into a place where, you know, you might lose sight of that. I, you know, I always try to come at it from like, hey, this person's been great. And the analogy, maybe a helpful analogy here is I had a, an advisor I crossed paths with and he talked about repotting plants, right? So it's like, hey, is this a plant we can repot, right? And so maybe that VP of sales on some level deep inside of them, maybe even knows that they can't do what needs to be done next. And maybe they'd be happy to learn from somebody, you know, who can go headlong. Now, you can't assume that. You don't know. But, you know, stranger things have happened in the back of people's minds. They know they're kind of at their their breaking point. And so, you know, like actually being able to have a conversation that's really not about the person, right? And what I mean by that is like, these are not conversations to make personal in any way about what that person can or can't do. It's entirely around like, hey, what we've done together is amazing so far. Okay, so that's personal. We're always going to have that. What I see us doing is, you know, being in three years, we're going to be here. Okay, the gap between here and there, and by the way, as a founder, you can probably get away with this, is say like, I don't know how to do it, right? (laughs) We haven't done this before, but I know it's different. And, you know, I think for that thing, I'm going to bring somebody in. But here's the deal. I, I want you to be here, subject to your wanting to be here as well. And let's bring somebody in. And, you know, for me, I would involve people in the recruit process, right? Like, let's have you have a hand in vetting them. Let's make sure there's somebody you can learn from. And, you know, you have so much knowledge about this business. 
that, you know, we don't want you to go anywhere. This was always my orientation. I, I, you know, I want you to stay. I have lots you can contribute, but we need somebody else to kind of lead this thing and take us to the next place. And so I think that, you know, creates an element of safety because I think sometimes people feel like, you know, I'm getting fired. I have to leave. And in a lot of cases, you don't even want that outcome. So you got to take that off the table and kind of make it their choice. Like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this because I think it's the right thing for the business. But you have a choice. Like we would you know, like you to stay. And maybe it's not working for that person. Maybe you can go and run something else now. Right. That's you've done a great job in, in sales. Maybe you can go and take that to service or something like this. I don't know. And this is where, again, it comes back to so much of it's going to be predicated on who is that person you're talking to? You know, what is their makeup? What are their values? Maybe they're, you know, it's all about them. And this is just a complete hit to their ego that they're never going to be able to handle. And they're just going to be like, you know, forget you. I'm out of here. And that's, you know, you learn something that day. And that's, you know, air quotes fine. But I think if you come at it with respect and you don't make it, you know, for me, at least, if you can retain that person after the new person comes in and make them part of the process, you know, that's what I did in the early days, for sure. Yeah, and it, it's it's the same. I know I brought up sales as an example, even though I have a product podcast here about being an entrepreneur. I, I I think that's one of the easy ones to think about. But it's the same process on the product side. You have people, you know, the role of a head of product changes as the company grows, right? It, the role does, but you know what? The thing about you know product that's particularly interesting is that knowledge of of the customer. You know, it's a really like people who are at a company early on, they understand both your product and a customer in a way that the new professionals often don't. And that customer intimacy, I'll go ahead and call it, is really important to helping those new professionals survive. Because a lot of times they're bringing in the, oh, well, I'll bring in the the process and maybe some leadership and some coordination, but it's going to be years for that new product leader to catch up and understand, you know, what the team already knows. And so then maybe that informs what kind of a leader you're looking for. Hey, are you coming in? You know, one of the questions I always ask, you know, when I think about a product leader, it's like, are you looking for revolution or evolution? And I think that's, if you're hiring a head of product, I think that's one of the most important questions because I think you'll get, you know, depending on how the organization set up, the other people are there, you you as a founder, I, I think you want a different product leader based on, hey, do we have a strong vision and we need somebody to help us go and get at it? Or are we basically running a turnaround? We don't know where to go because the product market is not fit. It's not working. And we need kind of the, the revolution. We need somebody to come in and create a vision for us and take us to it. And those are, there's an example of one role, two very different animals and very different outcomes. And uh, ideally, you want somebody who can flex between both. But mostly people have a, a leaning one way or another. Yeah, yeah. I would even ask that as an interview question. Pick one. Yeah. Everyone wants to say I've experienced doing both. But when you force them to pick one, they get one choice. Well, I think, and then I would say, like, what do you believe? To me, it's like not a question they can actually answer. That's going to come out and you got to probe and you got to understand, like, where are somebody's biases? Are they, you know, they work on leading indicators or lagging. It's all, uh, you know, and this gets into the art of interviewing, which is super hard as a founder because you probably don't have that much uh, pattern recognition. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I think not getting into the art of interviewing, but asking questions that have multiple right answers where they, they know they need to pick one is, is uh, helps you determine where their leanings are, right? You know, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, yourself, working on yourself. Talk to me about that process and, and what you did and how you did that. Well, I think there are, again, phases and periods of all of this, right? When you're you're starting out like we did and we kind of knew nothing. You're just kind of running from thing to thing for such a, a long time. And then as you start to like, I haven't really worked anywhere else. I didn't know how a software company worked. So 
the, the number of things that were necessary to learn while you're leading is just astronomical in that context, right? Like, it's not like I spent five years in Microsoft and I understood these functions and how they fit together and the roles complement. Like, it's just, you know, when you have that experience so much, you have a mental model for so many things that you don't even know you're going to need a mental model for. And so I think the the core thing I tried to do is just surround me with, you know, great people who, you know, if I didn't know, I would ask them. And, you know, this is going to sound funny to a lot of them in hindsight, but it's true. Like, I would just ask and get curious if I knew I didn't know how to solve a problem or I didn't have a, an opinion that I thought it was going to be good for the business. And so that was kind of my approach is because I couldn't go out and get the experience <laughs> because I was doing something and fully employed. Uh, I would A, collect advisors, but more, I, I probably learned more from the executives I brought in and trying to be curious around how they did that. And then having, you know, a discussion around whether like it's usually a terrible idea to just re-implement the same thing. So let's talk about it. Let's see what the situation's different. Like, how would you take some of those things and apply it? But but learn that way as can, uh, part of my approach over the years. And so that's so that's kind of growing in the functional roles. And then I do think just pushing yourself to be better, like, you know, walking the dog around the block at night. And like, you know, for me, it's just like attacking myself for all the things I did wrong that day and trying to be better. And then you get to a place and sorry for the ramble here, but it's like, then you get to a place where you can't keep it all straight and you basically just need to find mindfulness and, you know, like it's, it's like everything. It's like, there is no going through this wall. So just accept it all, try to quiet yourself down. And that and that's a bunch of years. And now, you know, we're at a place where, was it this month? But, but three weeks ago, after almost 20 years, I tossed the keys to a gentleman. I, I think we're in, if you've ever read wartime CEO and peacetime CEO, I think we're kind of going into a peacetime where it's an expansion stage. And, you know, he's a, an operator who I think is better suited to do what the company needs. So I think maybe the final thing would be like have enough you know, sort of self-awareness to say, can somebody do what needs to be done for the next leg of the race better? And, you know, I think that's the that case in this situation. Interesting. That's pretty awesome. I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the building the product, right? And obviously, you know, the product needs, just like the needs on you change as the company grows. And at one point, you rebuilt the FreshBooks platform. Talk to me about what made you guys decide to do that when you decided it was the right time uh, and how you went about that process. So why did we do it? We had built the first, you know, version in 2003 my co-founder was uh, somebody who could get a lot of stuff done and was a computer scientist, but was not a software craftsperson at all. And the punchline of all of that is we just had heaping amounts of technical debt by the time the real engineer started showing up. And so we we worked with that technical debt. And, and some of that technical debt was front end and back end together in kind of one monolithic you know front end piece of software. And a lot of the magic in our platform was actually uh, front end. Anyhow, long story short, we saw, hey, there's a need to kind of modernize not only our UX, but the look and feel to keep up with the times. Plus, you got all these new devices coming in with, you know, frankly, we started out, you know, mobile phones were not a thing. Today, they are the thing. In our category, they're they're less the hero than some other categories. But, you know, you really have to have a good mobile experience no matter, you know, certainly in our category and, and certainly in, in, in most others. And so for these reasons and more, but really the, the simplicity of the UX, like the new expectations, the, the standard we want to hold ourselves to, we basically looked at our front end meets back end monolithic piece of code and said, I don't think we can get here from there. And I don't know that we're setting the company up to have a great 30 year future if we don't take this problem on. And so, you know, we could have gone ahead and refactored and we explored that. But I think when you refactor front end design, like it's, it doesn't really work that way. You kind of need a new user experience. And because it was all jumbled together, like back end and front end, like basically refactoring was going to be a 
less of a viable path for us. So we went and recreated a new offering. And while we did it, we incubated it as a standalone company that no one knew it was us. And we did that so that we could have the safety, I guess, to go ahead and take big risks and to really like do something like lose data because we were moving so fast and taking so many risks. Now we didn't lose any data, but if you, you build a new platform with your existing brand and there's a problem, like you lose data, like your existing brand gets a hit as well. So we, we really wanted people to be able to take risks and, and to not have to suffer the consequences on the core brand while we did that. And so that's why we built off in the corner. And then we combined the two. And uh, after about 18 months, everyone who signed up for our service got the new thing. And then we continued to build and iterate on that. So this is like your secret competitor to yourself. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, there's a long-winded way of telling this story. We're covering lots of stuff, but that, that's right. We actually created a, a secret company that you could not associate with our own. That's where we built and tested the new FreshBooks. It's a company called Bill Spring, and it had like its own. It was incorporated. It had its own like documents, domain, logo, everything, and uh, we used that as kind of a testing playground until we, you know, had enough empirical data to say, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is a superior way forward, and, and let's make that the new thing. Do you, do you recommend that for other companies? Take that approach? I, I mean, perhaps. Like, you've got to choose your own circumstances. For us, we wanted to not be copied and to have as much time as we could out of, you know, the we've got a competitor whose uh, internal mantra is copy to compete. And so it's okay. like, okay, I'll take another 18 months, you know, just out of eyeshot to go ahead and work on something. So they have less time to adjust when I actually bring it to market. Like, yeah, that's the thing. So but, but also a big part of it was giving the uh, having the safety to really take big risks. Now, how was the integration process when you brought that in? Well, what we had, despite the man- monolithic front end and sort of back end code, we, we did have, we had done some work to start teasing apart our, the architecture of our application way back when. And so we basically had a path to the database that was separate. And so, so we really had the same database on the new and the old platform. It was more sidestepping a bunch of front-end entanglements, if that makes sense. And so so really, we just put a new front-end on the same back-end for a lot of people, which kind of you know, cut down on the, the problems, if you will. We did make some mistakes in there. Like we created a service that had its own, like moved away from the existing back-end patterns and started a whole new thing. And I think I regret that decision to this day and should have fought it harder. But mostly, it's still kind of even taking advantage of that older code, which we will now refactor that in a sensible way. But the front end was a different story. Now, beyond the opportunity to you know build something away from the watchful eyes of certain competitors, what else did your product team learn from the experience? What were some of the other big, maybe unanticipated learnings? Well, you know, I, I, there's a couple ways to cut this. I, I mean, I think there's reasons to go ahead and do that, you know, of which there are a, a bunch. But I think empirically knowing your new offering is better than just hoping it will be because you inside the building believe it is. And I think that was an important thing to learn. I think another thing we learned is when we launched, you know, it was great for new people, but our existing customers were not happy with it. So so that was, you know, there's a difference between what somebody signing up net new and your existing customers uh, will experience and expect. I think that was important. But Maybe more to the point, like what are some of the, like what would I say are some of the unexpected benefits of this whole process? I think the organization achieves peak performance during this period because it was so uncertain that we would survive it. Like it was really hard, like three weeks from launching, it wasn't clear that we were going to be able to land the plane and pull it off and, and flip the switch. And so, you know, for all these years, like, hey, you're building a new thing, it's your new baby. And it's really technically hard. It's not clear you're going to be able to kind of, you know, merge it all back into one at the end, if you will. Like that is, 
that brings out the best in people. You know, we had a lot of, and by the way, it's something I, I almost don't know how you would do. I wonder how you'd do that in a remote world. It'd be very interesting. Uh, like, as I think a lot of it was the collaboration stuff like that, like in office, but it was, there was like a real energy that was super exciting about that. And I think a lot of people took a next level of growth in themselves and really pushed and, you know, really, I think they, you know, if they'll all look back on it, a lot of people, that'll be the best, the peak of their career for sure. And they probably worked harder than ever and look back and say, I learned a ton and I loved it more than any time. Yeah, landing the, you know, not being sure if you're going to land the plane. That's definitely one way you can, uh, you know, cause havoc in the company. And one of the questions I had written down here, you know, we were chatting about earlier was the seven ways you almost killed FreshBooks. Talk to me about that. Well, nothing I've mentioned to date was on the original seven ways list. So I think uh, I'll just call that out and be like, you know, clearly it's been more than seven. But having said (laughs) that, uh, I assume this was one of the seven, but I guess yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I made I made this list, this uh, blog post that's out there, uh, Seven Ways I Almost Killed FreshBooks. You know, if anyone wants to go look it up, but for starting a company, there's, there's some really good stuff in there. But, you know, one of the things on that list was like a false sense of security from spending money. I think sometimes, like whether it's advertising dollars or we can grow if we only had the money, like it's a really seductive line of thinking and it's just not true. So that's one of the ways we almost killed it. And, and, you know, close to that is like believing the spreadsheet. You know, I, I'm a big fan of like having a business model of the spreadsheet so you understand how it works. But depending on how new and novel your offering is and your UX or whatever, like even if you end up hitting the numbers, I promise it won't happen the way you thought it was going to. You know, one thing in the, your funnel will go better than another and, and vice versa. And so it's a huge journey. And so I think, you know, again, not unlike money, spreadsheets can create a false sense of confidence. And then, you know, again, I'll give you a third one. I haven't read the post in a while, but they're all coming back to me here. And another one's just, you know, I, there were so many things I didn't know. And so you really just have this yearning a lot of times as a founder to have somebody in the early days to have somebody have the answer. You just kind of want to believe in them. And sometimes you encounter these people who are really confident and opinionated and maybe have got more knowledge and expertise than you. And invariably those people are always wrong. Like it's a great input, but no one knows you or your business or your customer like you do. So you just got to treat all that like an input and not kind of follow those folks to the letter of the law. And, you know, that can be from like, hey, your idea sucks and it's not going to work. It turns out they were wrong to, oh, you absolutely need to have big partners for distribution because it's too hard to reach small businesses, which turns out they were wrong. So, you know, those are things I could have believed in that other people who had more knowledge and expertise told me were true. And, you know, I kind of nodded my head and was afraid, but, you know, carried on and followed my own intuition. And by golly, here we are. It's interesting. Some of the the bad advice, which sometimes is just bad advice and sometimes is bad advice because of the context that they have to give it. Do you think, I mean, 2003 Toronto, similar to, I think in 2003, I forget where I was, maybe Pittsburgh, but you know, similar kind of cities in some ways, nascent tech scene, not necessarily always the best advice. Do you think that has something to do with it? Do you think if you're getting advice from people that maybe had more recently done it or uh, were, I hate to say we're from the Valley because that's not, it's not about location. It's about experience. Do you think that affects that? Or do you think it's largely driven by context? You know, it can be all of the above. You know, I'll go ahead and say, I think, you know, technology industries the world over have come a long way in the last couple of decades. And, you know, things like cloud didn't exist. And, you know, like there's just, there's a lot of moving pieces. So it's pretty hard to, you know, put down to stuff. Yeah. So I, I think, I don't know. 
I really, I don't want to cop out on it, but I, I will say, you know, one of the things I did along the way was I sort of got close with this guy who had a lot of basically San Francisco based experience. He became a close advisor. He started working with us closely and then believe it or not, he up and just, um, said, hey, you guys aren't moving fast enough for me. I'm going to go work with this other guy who is more modern, who is more up on this stuff, and we're going to compete with you. And here, you know, like, I'm out. And just, like, completely became wow. a traitor. And it was like, holy shit. Like, I've spent a lot of time with this person. Pardon my French. I shouldn't uh, swear. Yeah, no, it's all but, good. But um, anyways, suffice it to say, that company went well for, like, 18 months or whatever, and is not around anymore. And we kept going. So I learned a lot from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, so where do you net out on the, your question? Like, yeah, I, I do think there are some parts of the world that are a lot further along in their thinking, but I don't think anything's like the whole and no, there's one person like, the yeah, whole. and I don't need to say parts of the world either. Some of it's just experience. Like I think like you, I've been around for a little while and I, I moving to the cloud was a whole another step and you start getting, you know, even in, in let's say like 2010, if you're getting advice from people that are used to building software companies that were all, you know, gold disk driven versus cloud driven, there's a big paradigm shift there in how you build a company. And so that's what I mean more of the example is like, you know, you'd run into, at least I did in, in the Pittsburgh and Toronto type places back then, a lot of the people that are like, oh, I had done it, you know, back in the day when it was like this, which wasn't the day of like cloud-based, you know, salesforce.com kind of companies, right? So I found a lot of that more, and some of that's location-based, but location is immaterial in that decision, right? I mean, it's immaterial, I guess, in my point. It was just, I was thinking about this from a perspective of like, lots of people that might have done it that aren't in the same kind of done it recently enough in the same kind of technology stack and how does that affect opinions or advice yeah i think of it increasingly around pattern recognition like hey i've seen a couple platforms come now and i kind of not perfectly certain what the next big important one's going to be but i feel a little more prepared to a recognize it and b contend with it and make good decisions just because i've seen desktop to cloud I've seen the emergence of mobile. I've seen the move to, you know, like sort of distributed hosting and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think I think that's right. And you can get people who learned it one time in one place. And often, too, like the people we're going to for advice who've been in the industry for five years or whatever, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, I think a lot of it is, hey, can you diagnose who you're talking with and what is the good you can take from them? Because a lot of times that person who, yeah, been there, done that, well, they might have been like one part of a team. And if you speak with that team's leader, that team's leader may have a very different perspective on all the advice that was just given. And, you know, and it's hard to diagnose when you're early, you know, getting started, unless you've been in industry, like which animals, which, and I yeah. think that is, uh, that is a huge part of it all too. I, a friend and I used to describe it of, you know, who's the cog versus the wheel, especially at some of the bigger companies like Google, you know, were they the wheel? Were they the cog? Like, are we getting advice from the, the right person there? And I think one of the challenges as an entrepreneur and as a product person is really, being able to separate the good advice from the bad, because even from the people that have done it recently and understand, you know, at least part of your situation, it's still difficult because they're not in it day in and day out. 100%. So talk to me about hiring. Talk to me about what makes a good, strong, you know, chief product officer, what you look for in building a product team. Yeah. So, I mean, the first of all, you got to diagnose your context again. Are you building enterprise software? 
Are you building consumer software? Are you building for something in the middle, kind of like we are at FreshBooks and you need some of both? I really think, you know, the, a great product person's very different at a consumer company versus an enterprise company. And not everybody's going to agree with that, but, you know, that is my, my take on things. And there's product leaders who've done both. But I think just one is, you know, very limiting and probably not as likely to succeed in the other context. So, so that is kind of a, a first thing. And then what do you look for? For me, you know, the most successful folks, you know, that I've had the opportunity to work with, the ones who I would say the judgment, you know, comes back and it's like, yes, right? And, you know, as someone who knows the customer for 20 years, like I kind of do know it when I see it. They are folks who are similar, like they're very interested in the customer. They spend time you know, close to the customer, they, you know, they do a lot of with customer time to get a really solid foundation. And then that informs their decisions and they communicate in ways that the customers would and discuss the, the problems in the way they would. So I think, I think that's kind of like foundational because, you know, if you don't have that, I think you can start to make a lot of decisions that are ham fisted. And, you know, if you think about kind of like entropy or I'm not even sure that's the best application of it, but, you know, Every step you get away from a customer, you know, you're getting less and less clear signal, less and less closer to the truth, and you're less and less likely to build something people really love. And so then it's like, okay, like many people are going to be getting direction from your product leader. Do they understand the customer? <laughs> so I think that's like, you know, that's a core thing and no matter what, what size and scale. And then, you know, it really does depend on the job you're doing, right? Like we've had parts where, hey, we've got nothing built and you've got to go from zero to something. And then there's other parts where it's like now it's like, hey, we've got to marshal a whole bunch of people and projects. And that's a very different problem set. And you need a different product leader for it. So I think, you know, to the extent you can go ahead and diagnose your situation, you know, that it's like anything, like spend more time defining the problem. And then, you know, the, the right product leader is going to fit, you know, that situation versus necessarily just being a great product leader. So when we're talking about that CPO, it raises another thought or question I have, right? Do you have advice for a first-time CPO moving into a company where they're, you know, joining and working for a founder CEO, maybe someone who's strongly oriented to product? Like, how do they develop that right working relationship? What should they do to make it work? So first of all, I want to recognize, I don't think that's easy. You know, if the, there's that strong founder still there, and they're going to have strong opinions about what should be done. So I, I would say a couple things in that situation. The first of all is know whether you're revolution or evolution. And if you're revolution, you may not want to go there if that, that founder still wants to be involved in the product. Because it's just going to be, you know, good chance it's going to be painful. Because that founder may not be looking for revolution. Unless the board is like, hey, we need revolution. We need something totally different. Like, you can just ignore them. So I think that's, you know, situational awareness with that is key. But then I think the other thing to go ahead and do is to take the attitude of like ultra low ego and say, how do I get as much as I can out of this individual? You know, they know the customer. They know the market. I may have had a whole bunch of experience or whatever, but those things are going to help me win. And if you see, you know, by and large, what, you know, venture capitalists are doing these days, and they're trying to keep the founders around as long as possible, right? The CEOs, like the number of CEO founders now has gone up relative to like the 2000s or certainly the you know, 99s. Back when the day was, yeah, the founder can start the company. That's nice. We'll put a professional in. Now it's, you know, through Andreessen Horowitz and all the folks, you know, like them are realizing, listen, these founders are the wellspring of long-term value. We need to figure out how to assemble teams around them so they're still here and helping to guide us, assuming they have the requisite self-awareness and they have enough of a vision and all that kind of stuff. 
But then it's like, how do we build around them to keep them engaged and retained? Because the company will ultimately be more valuable if we do that. And so I think as a, a product leader stepping in, I think a diagnosis situation, is it like a turnaround? And I can, you know, I want to ignore the founder. Or is it like, hey, the company's being successful and I want to channel the founder? And how do I help them get done what they believe needs to be done? And you're kind of playing the role of an implementer, a partner for sure, and you're going to add to it. But it's, I think it's a different orientation. And the founder might be like, I want nothing left to do with product anymore. I had to do it. It wasn't interesting to me. So again, these are you know conversations to have up front. But I think that's a bit of the, the way to think about things. So as we're kind of wrapping towards Dan here, let's let's talk a little bit about the future. What trends do you see coming in tech in general, you know, this year, the next few years? Uh, well, I think, I mean, depending on the category you're in, you know, in a lot of cases, I, I just think we're super early days with applied analytics and machine learning and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of ways that's going to manifest are really rudimentary experiences, just making, you know, errors not happen and stuff like this that are just going to make software better and better and better. So I, I think that's, I, mean, I think it's really early days with that, though, you know, it's being used a lot in a lot of places. And, but I, I think, you know, again, early, early days. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm personally curious around, you know, I think it's early and still too early, but yeah, hey, the Bitcoin kind of the world, we live in, in payments and like, what does internet money really look like? And how does it relate to the first generation internet? And how does, you know, how does that all go? And yeah, I mean, I, Tesla honestly, just I, bought a lot of Bitcoin today. Tesla did? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe like, I don't know. I don't know what to, uh, I don't know what to make of the recent run up in, in Bitcoin and whether to think it's a, it's a good thing. And I'm just, you know, whatever, holding off or whatever. But listen, long term, I believe there is a thing there. I think the question is, how early are we? And I think it is still super, super early. But I'm curious to see how that starts to affect things. And you can see certain industries and applications of that technology that get you know very interesting pretty quickly. So uh, looking for those things to come along. I'm involved with a company in the commercial insurance space, and and that is uh, an industry that is fascinating because you know insurers are are kind of it's the classic like they're just they're not from technology, and they're moving slowly, and they're inherently risk averse because uh, getting it wrong can can cost you a lot with the underwriting. So I see a lot of software, just software itself, starting to get into more industries still that is exciting. So not sure anything revolutionary or earth shattering, any of those, you know, sort of <laughs> forecasts, but those are those are all places of big change and sources of change I see coming. So what's what's your favorite product? My favorite product? Well, my common answer to that is that the ballpoint pen. So I can keep notes and write stuff down in a moleskin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not a software product, but uh, you know, pretty useful. Absolutely. Three words to describe yourself. Okay, so we're supposed to do speed round. So I'll put these things are in contrast. Vision, late adopter, challenging. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Mike. This is awesome. Cool. Thanks for having me, Eric.